0: a podcast by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg and supported by the Swedish Research Council. This 43rd episode of Governance Uncovered will start by covering some reflections from COP27, the climate summit that was recently held in Cairo, Egypt. We will have researchers Rabab El Mahdi and Nadim Farayala, who will discuss COP27 in regards to climate justice and focus on the Middle East and North Africa region. Then we will hear an interview with Professor Gillian Schwedler on her latest book, Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Descent. And finally, we'll hear an interview that GLD director Ellen Lust did with Becca Ross Russell, who runs two child care organizations in Tanzania called the Families and Future Coalition and The Small Things. As always, we hope that you enjoy the episode and like, share and subscribe if you do. Between November 6th and 18th, The UN Climate Summit COP27 was held in Cairo, Egypt. And there was an expectation among the Middle East and North African countries that this region would be prioritized now when the summit took place in Egypt. GLD collaborator Rabab El-Madi from Alternative Policy Solutions sat down with Nadim Farayala from Isam Fares Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University in Beirut. And they spoke about the loss and damage fund, seen as one of COP27's major wins by many, especially when it comes to prioritizing the more climate-vulnerable countries. But how will this fund actually work? And will it help local communities with adapting to long-term climate change? Hear Rabab and Nadim's thoughts about that. And also their thoughts on COP27's lack of new restrictions for fossil fuels and the ways the declaration can be seen to have favoured oil and
1: gas producing countries. So COP27 had just ended and we're trying to reflect on that. So one of the things that I think we we would like you to explain to us is the climate fund. Is this like a new initiative for loss and damage or does this build on the existing efforts that had been in place? My understanding is that it's been agreed upon to set this fund so that the developing countries can actually pay money and financial support for countries of the South that suffer from damages caused by climate change so if you can explain to us what's that fund and how would it impact local communities and not just governments
2: yeah great rabab thanks a lot the problem is this loss and damage fund has been a contentious issue ever since the cop meeting started so it's it's been in the making for 30 years developing countries have been seeking this fund from developed countries if you go back to the kyoto agreement there's a distinction between Developing economies and developed economies. And the developed economies are basically Europe, North America, and uh, Japan, uh, Australia. Uh, China and India were categorized back in 92 as developing, and this categorization has not changed. So this push by developing countries for loss and damage due to climate change impacts has been a, a very, 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 contentious issue. Developed countries did not want to accept this because then they would set themselves up to other demands, and so they have been pushing back on on, on this topic. The breakthrough that occurred in COP27, the first one, occurred when the loss and damage was put on the agenda in the first place. It took two days of negotiations to put the loss and damage on the agenda. That was a great breakthrough. Finally, the good breakthrough came in when the EU made an about turn, I think it was Thursday, just before the official end of the COP, and they said that they support the loss and damage, but other countries have to contribute. It's not only the developed countries, those that have shifted from 1992 till now from being developing to developed. Mainly, they were targeting China for that. They did this to squeeze China because China was leading the other countries in in the demand for loss and damage. And also this put a lot of pressure on the U.S. to accept this. So 40 hours of negotiations after the the official closure of the COP, supposed to end on Friday, it stayed on until the early mornings of Sunday. And this came out as a breakthrough deal that Everybody accepted the loss and damage fund to be established with voluntary support from some of the countries that were categorized as developing, namely China, the European Union, and the USA wanted to bring in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf oil producing countries like the UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar into supporting this fund. And what this means, though, it's the first of all, for me, that's a positive thing, to start with. The problem is there are, we were given a year, hopefully a year, to come up by COP28 with the mechanisms, the sort of the how to establish this fund, who provides the money and who benefits. One of the most contentious issues was when the Europeans came up with the declaration was the most vulnerable countries would benefit from this. Okay, great. Define most vulnerable. That's the problem. Define vulnerable. That's an even worse problem. So this became a contentious issue. I think it's going to to remain a contentious issue until an agreement is is reached on this level. However, what does this mean? This means countries that are not well-to-do. If you look at the Caribbean, many small island states over there are are really, really vulnerable to climate change. They are on the path of all those hurricanes that occur. And we know by fact that hurricanes are becoming more and more severe and strong due to climate change. And they are becoming more frequent. So the Bahamas, Bermuda, Trinidad and Tobago, name them, are subject to Cuba back to back to back to back to hurricanes, which are devastating. And their economies cannot make up the losses. And many, many vulnerable communities. In these vulnerable states, are unable to recover. Haiti, for example, the country that has been beset by troubles, earthquakes unrelated to climate. We got a major earthquake, and then they were hit with a hurricane after hurricane, and that caused a lot of damage. Bringing it more closer to home in the West Asia, North Africa region. If you look at the monsoon season that starts in June to October in Southeast Asia. It affects a lot Yemen and Oman and has some lingering impacts into Saudi Arabia. This is when you have a lot of the rain occurring. And also cyclones occur frequently during that period. Oman was devastated on several occasions by strong cyclones, the most famous of which is Gono, leading to billions of dollars of damage, etc. Oman supposedly can manage this because of its oil revenue. Yemen has absolutely no ability to recover. Yemen is already suffering from political turmoil and is destitute. Then you get into problems with severe weather. They are unable to recover.
1: Let me interrupt you with two things here. Listening to what you're saying, I'm worried that this fund will become sort of like an emergency fund. So catastrophe hits, these countries get some funds. But it's not gonna help with the adaptation and with preparing those countries and those vulnerable places basically to how climate change is impacting them long term. You know, things to do with the agriculture and resources. So that's my first concern. The second concern is that many of those countries are unfortunately not very democratic. And hence, will there be any kind of guarantees that local communities will be treated justly? when it comes to how those funds are are divided or used as opposed to priorities set by non-democratic governments which might be benefiting a small elite?
2: Okay, good questions here. Loss and damage in parts is going to be an emergency fund, but how they structure it is going to be different. Keep in mind that it's not the only financial mechanism That's in place. In COP26 in Glasgow, there was a major push to raise the uh, adaptation fund. And COP27 was to be the implementation COP where these financial mechanisms are outlined, discussed, agreed to, and set in motion. This did not happen. But you've got the loss and damage now. It's in the picture. The mechanics of it are not clear. You've got an adaptation fund to which more ambition is going to be put in, more fund is going to be put in. So that will help countries plan for the future. You've got already the mitigation fund. I call it the mitigation fund because most of the fund that goes into climate action is into mitigation. So you've got that. That's the $100 billion supposedly that's going to be paid every year that was supposed to have been paid. It ends in 2025, but there are more activities along that line, so it's going to be there. So you've got a series of funds that are coming in place. Here comes the wisdom of the world community in, if you will, integrating all these funds together to create a sustainable climate finance mechanism for everybody, because at, as things stand right now, the international community, the developed countries have excused or recluse themselves from paying for the damage they have caused. They have caused damage to the climate and they have caused damage to the environment in countries that they either colonized or utilized or abused in terms of uh, resources. The buck has to stop somewhere and somebody has to own up. It is coming to this now. They are owning up. So it's not going to be truly an emergency fund, but an emergency fund is well needed because a lot of these countries, before being going into what mode of government they are, many of these countries are indebted and they don't have any funds. And you add to it money that they're going to be made to borrow to cover for the losses that they have suffered from climate action, this is unfair. So what has happened is this fund is going to come in with no impact on their budgets, on their debts, et cetera. So hopefully that's going to be an alleviation of a load on them. Now, how this this fund is dispersed and whether it's going to get there to where it is. I don't like the terminologies, this is a democratic country, this is a free country, this is not a free country, autocracy, et cetera. I don't see a lot of democracies going around these days. It is the rule of big companies. At, at COP27, there were 630 representatives of not individuals, 630 lobbyists, lobby groups were oil and representing oil and gas were present in COP27. This is obnoxious, totally obnoxious. The, and, and they worked very hard to water down some of the wording in the final statement. So the removal of oil, there was a statement in Glasgow where coal would be phased out and there was a hope oil and gas will be phased out as well. And uh, peak emissions would be set in 2025. All of these have been watered down. And those, the perpetrators of this watering down are oil and gas producing countries. All of them. This is where we should be focusing and we should not be focusing on How will we disperse the funds? Who will be getting that? These mechanisms are more or less simple. Yet we need to make sure that donors do not play politics with this money. So if donor A likes group one better than group two in country X, but both are group one and group two are are, are hurt by the flooding or by whatever catastrophic event had occurred, I do not expect donor A to to favor one over the other. Everybody should be treated equally. There should be no donor-driven agendas.
1: So, Nadim, you raised a very important issue. And one of the major criticisms for COP27 has been that the final declaration and agreements, as someone put it, has the oil industry and oil-producing countries written all over it. One of the major demands for movements across the globe is basically to end the use of fossil fuels, and we have not seen this in COP27. COP28 is expected to be hosted, will be hosted, in the United Arab Emirates. Again, one of the major oil-producing countries, even more than Egypt. How do you see, in the near future, the prospects for reaching an end to the use of fossil fuels, given all the lobbying efforts and that the host countries seem to be not playing an impartial role?
2: I expect the UAE to play a different role. They are trying to present themselves differently. They want to diversify their economy. They're trying to do a lot more towards the use of renewables. They want to showcase commitment to renewable energy. That said, we know that complete removal of reliance on fossil fuel will not occur very quickly. One of the major complaints about this agreement or this declaration was that it left the door open slightly for gas to be kept on as a low emission, as they said, you know, turning to low emission uh, energy or sources of energy, gas being one of those. I think gas is going to be a transition. It will be a while that we are stuck to that. Personally, I would much rather use gas than use nuclear. Nuclear energy scares me, scares the hell out of me, because it is not renewable, as people say. Even though it is of very low emission, it uses a lot of water, the the, the waste generated stays on for a long, long time. What we are doing now would be kicking the can down the road and leaving it to our great-grandchildren to figure out what to do with it. So let us not kid ourselves and go nuclear. Let us use what we have in terms of science and technology development, working with hydrogen as an energy source. That, 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 that will be a fantastic move forward. I think the UAE will present differently. People complain and all about the the rule of law and the crackdown on freedom of expression, all that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But also, I remember when I was in the different cops, mainly, you know, a lot in Copenhagen, a lot of the demonstrators were beaten up and in other places. So it's everywhere. Let's not point fingers along those lines. You know, nobody is Mother Teresa. Not one country can absolve itself from uh, Harsh measures against demonstrators. So, that aside, I think Egypt did a reasonably good job in forging this declaration out. It's decent, can be a lot more uh, ambitious, but given what they have to deal with, that was a, a good job by the presidency. Now they hand it over to the UAE. UAE may be able to do things a little bit differently. Let's wait and see. The good thing is we can put pressure from now until we have a year. Basically, less than a year. We have about six, seven months until the bond meeting start again. And we can start, you know, ratcheting up the pressure to demand much more ambition, much more clarity. And we want more, basically. Really, we want more. When, when people talk about the loss and damage, it's about justice. To me, climate justice is not about the now. It's the now and the history are done. They're done. For me, climate justice is not for us right now. It's for our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We need to be fair to them. They are unborn. We have to care for them right now. That's where the justice lies. The world needs to look way down in generations and then safely say eventually that we did all that we could do uh, to be fair to them, to give them something that is a planet that's still livable.
1: Thank you so much, Nadim. This was very useful.
0: A few weeks ago, Jillian Schwedler, professor of political science at Hunter College and at the City University of New York Graduate Center, visited us in Gothenburg and gave a seminar on her new book, "Protesting Jordan." Geographies of Power and Descent. This is a book based on her 25 years of field research and it examines protests in Jordan as they are situated in the built environment, bringing together considerations of networks, spatial imaginaries, space and placemaking, and political geographies at local, national, regional, and global scales. Ellen Lust sat down with Gillian to talk about this book of hers, and to
3: explore how we understand protests in Jordan and elsewhere. I'm Gillian Schwedler. I teach political science at Hunter College and the Graduate Center at the City University of New York.
4: Thank you, Jillian. It's great to have you here today and also to have you in Gothenburg and and able to share your work with us. Congratulations on years of work coming together.
3: Thank you so much. I'm really happy.
4: You're looking at protests in Jordan and you're making a case that that we can understand not only protests and protest movements in the way that we often study them, but that we can understand Jordan, kind of the state of Jordan and Jordanian politics more generally, and that we can think about particular spaces and local spaces and how they're how they're effectively controlled or contained during protest events or in order to deal with protest events. So I'd like to hear you step back for a minute and tell us a little bit about what brought you to
3: this topic, what brought you to studying this. So I started studying protests as part of my earlier project, the Faith in Moderation book, and I was attending protests that Islamist actors were participating in. And I just started to realize there were so many protests happening all over the place and not just the big protests in the capital or the nationwide protests around Israel-Palestine, or austerity, IMF, etc. But there are a lot of little localized protests all over the capital, and in fact all over the country, that weren't really getting attention. And so I started thinking about protests, not just as things that social movements do, like if you're studying the labor movement, then you look at labor protests, but rather thinking in a real localized sense, like what do protests in a particular space look like, over a very long span of time, in some cases, decades. So protests that are in front of the prime ministry have evolved, even all these different groups are engaged in them at that particular location, they've evolved and the police responses have also evolved. So I started just engaging that and looking at patterns and I realized that it does play a central role in how the state responds to different protests. So it's not only trying to put down the big protests, it might be in an outlying area that's important to the regime few dozen people is a really contentious protest that they have to attend to.
5: Can
4: you give us a sense how that evolution takes place or looks like in terms of, give the example of the Prime Minister's residence, right? What does that look like over time?
3: Okay, great. So the Prime Minister's residence is located at the Fourth Traffic Circle, which is called the Fourth Circle in Amman. And it's illegal to criticize the government. It's illegal to criticize the king under several laws. And so people direct their anger at the prime ministry. And so the fourth circle location where the prime ministry is, is a common place for protest. So in the 90s, it was a major intersection, actually with a traffic light. Protests would go out there and clog the traffic to bring the city to a stop. And it was a very effective means of getting attention. Over the years, though, that particular site has evolved. First, in terms of the government trying to ease the traffic congestion, created all these underpasses. And that affected protests in the fact that they couldn't bring the traffic to a standstill anymore. And secondly, a lot of the people in those cars underneath had no idea a protest was happening. So they were less disruptive, but they were also less visible. Yet the site remained an important place for protest. And in recent years, particularly since the uprising period, it was really a go-to place for protest. And at some point the government decided, we don't want protests here. But instead of banning protests there, they initially cordoned off a pedestrian plaza where people would gather in the center of the traffic circle. And they put up a fence and landscaping and trees so you couldn't protest in that space. A little bit later, there was a parking lot just next to the traffic circle where people would gather. A big fence went up around that parking lot. And eventually, they decided they didn't want protests there at all. And they allocated a new location, which was a parking lot by the Jordan Hospital, that they could have protests there. And what was funny is people would protest there and call them fourth circle protests, even though they were no longer on the fourth circle. And so I traced these kinds of evolution in a number of protest sites in Amman, the sort of really fine-grained detail of how the space is changing and how the government's trying to create constraints to make it difficult for people to gather and protest.
4: And you kind of present a framework, right, of how we can think about the strategies that governments or the regimes are taking towards the protesters and and how they're sort of using space in order to contain, essentially, opposition or protesters. Can you give us a kind of a rundown of the different strategies that you've found?
3: Sure. So the one I just mentioned with the Fourth Circle, which is to create exclusions, fences and walls, ways of preventing people from gathering on a particular site. So I see a number of instances of that. I see also containment which is whereby you can protest in a particular location as long as you don't leave that location. And that's common, for example, on university campuses or in some of the refugee camps. You can do whatever you want, just don't try to take it out and block the main streets. Also erasures, ways in which governments try to wipe away any evidence that a protest happened on a certain site. So immediately, that will mean things like taking down any banners or placards or anything left behind. But it can also mean Erecting nationalist symbols in place of that to signify, you know, nationalism in the state and military strength. Pictures of the of the monarch and what have you. There are also other kinds of erasures, such as not in Jordan but in Bahrain, the Pearl Roundabout, which became a symbol of the 2011 uprising. And they not only disassembled the Pearl Roundabout statue and turned the traffic circle into an intersection but there was a coin in circulation that had the Pearl Roundabout statue on the coin, and they took the coin out of circulation. So that's, you know, a dramatic instance of trying to eliminate any symbolism that might be associated with the uprising. So I'm looking at a lot of these instances, and as you move across the city of Amman or elsewhere in Jordan, if you're aware of this, you can really see many ways in which the built environment has been reshaped to prevent protests or to make them, render them less disruptive and less visible.
4: Is that in response to the, the public demand in the sense, or is it simply a response to trying to contain protesters? In other words, how much does also the general public recognize this, respond to it, and perhaps even in some cases endorse it?
3: So I'm not sure about the general public. I, anecdotally, I can say a lot of people are very annoyed by protests that tell me, They're sick of the fourth circle, traffic circle, being clogged up and the protests aren't going to accomplish anything. And why do these two dozen people get to inconvenience the rest of us? From the regime's perspective, what I find interesting is I just don't know who's calling for these to happen. So in some instances, it's clear the government-owned spaces, the government is paying, or the municipality is paying, to put up fences around Mm -hmm. traffic circles and landscape them and render them inaccessible. In other cases, when there's private lots that fences go up, I don't know, for example, it could be that they're being harassed by the government to put up that fence. It could be they're nervous they might be sued, that something could go wrong. They maybe just don't want the protesters there, and they take it on their own initiative. Another example, which isn't in the book, but came after the book was in production, is after the Sheikh Jarrah protests, people went around all the trash cans and stenciled the Israeli flag on all these trash cans. Interesting. And uh, one of the municipal governors... I don't know his actual position, but somebody worked in the municipality, told uh, anthropologist Kyle Craig that he took it on his own to have those washed over because he thought this is what the regime would want. And so we don't know that there's a central articulated strategy. It could be that. One fence goes up and others decide this must be what we want to do, must be what the regime wants. But the cumulative effect is all these spaces have been shut down.
4: Yeah, that's really interesting, right? And it does lead us to not simply assuming this kind of single central force that decides how to respond. Here's the strategy,
3: we're going to do it.
4: Which is, I think, really useful, right? And a reminder vis-a-vis some of the work on protests, which does suggest that we have a single government response and, and that we can think about it in those terms. I think the other thing that you're really doing is asking us to think about and almost problematize protests themselves differently than most of the literature does.
3: Yeah, there's a dominant focus on success or failure. And this scholarship, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it traitens our vision to look for particular things. They're making demands. Do they achieve those demands? And if they don't achieve those demands, it's a failed protest. And that's true. It's failed on that count. But I'm really looking at other kinds of political effects that protests can have. So for example, the Muslim Brotherhood likes to have large protests that are not contentious, and they'll take photographs of it, and they'll be publicized in their publications, which is a way of signaling to their own constituency, maybe to a wider population, that they still exist, they're important, that they can get out thousands of people at a protest. But it's not contentious towards the regime, but it does a different kind of political work. Other activists talk about protesting in spaces that seem to be non-contentious at all because they don't want the opportunity to protest to disappear. So they're just trying to keep open spaces to criticize the government, even if they're not going to achieve what they want. For example, the regime isn't going to cancel the peace treaty with Israel because of protests, and they know that. But they keep protesting because they want to preserve that space. And also they tell me that when a big event comes, they want people to know where to go to protest. And if they're familiar with certain places are the go-to spaces, then people will turn out there. If people don't have a sense of where people are protesting, even if they're annoyed by those protests, when a big event comes up, they won't necessarily know where to go. So I think there's a lot of these very tangible political effects of protests that have nothing to do with whether they accomplish their quote-unquote goal.
4: Yeah, it's almost like thinking about when candidates are running for, for office, right? That sometimes a candidate <laughs> does not expect to win, but is trying to do agenda setting or do other things. And if we only focus on, you know, did they win or lose, we lose a lot of reasons candidates can run or protesters can protest.
3: Yeah, precisely.
4: Yeah. yeah. Very interesting work. So in a sense, you're shedding light on not only the dynamics of of protest and thinking about the Jordanian regime, but kind of more generally this question about how do we understand phenomena in a Mm -hmm. sense, right? And what kinds of meaning should we give it? What place does it play? Are there other things that you either that came out of your work or that you think that these are things that people should be paying attention to and that are misstudied or not fully studied?
3: Well, in addition to not assuming that large protests are more contentious than smaller protests, I think that's something really worth considering. And I hope people think about this comparatively. I'm going to try to think about it comparatively. But another issue is thinking that protests aren't these exceptional moments of rupture to normal-time politics. And they seem that way when we only attend to the big protests, like the uprising period or you know nationwide protests. And those are significant. I'm not saying they're not. But there's so much that happens in between. And so there's two kinds of observations that I think are worth considering. One is that resistance and protest is pretty ongoing. And this isn't only in Jordan, this is in many countries. And so the governments are often maneuvering to diminish protests here, to address and co-opt here. But it's an ever going struggle to sort of respond to resistance, which is pretty ongoing. The second thing is, if you are interested in those big protests like the uprisings, if you don't know how people are protesting routinely before, you're not going to notice what the real innovations are. So at the beginning of Jordan's uprising period, people poured into the downtown area where they always pour into. But the real innovations were these smaller groups in outlying areas that came to be known collectively as the Harak, which were small in number, but they were new. And you wouldn't necessarily notice that if you're just focusing on how many were in downtown, like was it ten thousand, was it fifteen thousand? You missed these other innovations. So I think For most people studying those bigger periods, you can enrich the analysis by having a familiarity with existing patterns and routines. And again, as you mentioned, it's uh, central to the analysis is this spatial thing. Where do they exist in particular locations? What do they look like in this neighborhood versus this neighborhood, in this town? And understanding those patterns can give us leverage to see when people are breaking routine and really innovating.
4: Innovating, and in, and in a sense it seems at times you're suggesting are also more contentious, right? That that's, it's almost more challenging when something new is taking place, or at least draws the attention of the regime in different ways than it does if it's the usual Saturday protest, Friday protest, I should say.
3: Yeah, yeah absolutely. So as I mentioned, the downtown protests are often thousands of people, but they last between three and four hours. When they gather in a certain place, you eventually march, and then you disperse. Particularly since the uprising period, Any kind of encampment, and not just an encampment, but a tent, a tent with a dozen people outside of a jail protesting someone's detention, is so much more contentious to the regime, because encampments mean tahrir, mean long-term change. And so they go to great lengths to tear down these tents in out-of-the-way places that no one but locals can possibly see, and yet let the downtown protests run normally. So I think it's interesting to see those kinds of innovations. And I have a whole section on fear of tents.
4: That's fantastic. Yeah. Again, it's it's wonderful work. It's beautifully written. It's extremely, extremely, I think, important work for us to think about, again, not only protests, but the, a wide range of phenomena that we often make assumptions about, and we can step back and rethink.
3: So. Well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. And I'm excited. I hope people take up some of the ideas and we can see comparatively how they work differently in different locations. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Becca Russ Russell is the founder and executive director of the Small Things Tanzania and the Families and Future Coalition in Tanzania. Two organizations that aim to support families who cannot take care of their children for different reasons. On the Families and Future website, they say, We believe in a coalition of organizations working together can democratize and decolonize access to high-quality training and practical support. This is to help grassroots organizations improve their quality of care and move toward family-first models. End quote. Ellen met with Becca to hear more about how they work on the ground to combine grassroots perspectives with institutional knowledge to meet families where they are and ensure that fewer children grow up in extreme poverty.
4: Thank you, Becca, for joining me today. We're in Boston, and that's a great place to be. You're usually
0: in Tanzania, so
4: I appreciate that we're we're together in the same room to to discuss your work and and the conditions in
5: Tanzania itself.
4: I'd like to just begin by giving you the opportunity to introduce yourself and the work you do.
5: Thank you so much for having me. You're right, Boston has been beautiful and it's really, really nice to be here. My name's Becca Ross Russell. I'm the executive director and the founder of the Small Things Tanzania and also the Families and Futures Coalition of Tanzania, which are respectively our direct service work and systems change vehicles. I've been in Tanzania for 12 years, and feel very privileged to get to to work work with the children.
4: Can you tell us a little bit first, before we get to the work that you and the organizations do, can you tell us a little bit first about the conditions on the ground in Tanzania with regards to children? I know you work with what we think of as orphans, but how many of them are really parentless
5: and what are the challenges that are faced? Absolutely. I think the best way to answer this is to go back in history a little bit and look at how the orphanage system was created in Tanzania in the 80s and 90s. So prior to that, uh, the families really had an effective structure where they were able to incorporate most family members if, if a child parent passed away There was a sort of set order for who the child would go to. And it worked fairly well. There there wasn't a huge problem with orphan and vulnerable children. Over the course of the HIV AIDS crisis, that capacity broke down. It was no longer enough with a lot of people. I believe over 90% of the people who passed away were in the 18 to 49 age group. So it really put a huge strain on the, the safety net that was there. A lot of well-meaning international organizations came in alongside the local community members who took kids into their home, and they created these orphanages that were more structured centers, and they worked in that they kept kids alive. But as time has gone on, we've seen the challenges that come along with children growing up in institutions. Since 2008, the number of children who've lost one or both parents has been declining, which is great, but the number of children in orphanages isn't yet. It hit an all-time high in 2016, which is the latest time I was able to locate firm data for, and from my personal knowledge, it seems to have continued to plateau or climb since then.
4: About how many is that? How many orphans are we looking at, or how many children, I should say, since since Again, we'll come to this, but they're not all really orphans, right? Exactly. Um, How many Um, children?
5: So we're dealing with about, the bare minimum is 25,000. That's Uh the number of children in registered orphanage centers in Tanzania. In our district, which is fairly well covered, half of the orphanage centers are unregistered. In which district is that? That's the Meru, Arusha Meru district, Aru Meru district. If you look into the more remote areas, chances are the numbers are much higher. So in reality, probably closer to 50,000 children in care, between 200 and 500 centers. And again, those are the low end of the estimates. Because
4: the 25,000 is the number of people in registered centers alone.
5: Exactly. So on top of that, you have over a third of Tanzanian families are already caring for at least one child who's not part of that nuclear family. Uh Um, So either a grandchild, a nephew, a cousin. And that's part of why also the formal adoption and foster system isn't used very often because most Tanzanian families if they want to take in a child to help, they can easily they find, find somebody yeah. in yeah. their extended network. Yeah. Is
4: it stigmatized to actually put your child into a kind of a formal foster? I mean, is there also a stigma that goes along with it? Or, to, for example, to be a grandmother and to say, I'm simply
5: too old to take care of this child? What's fascinating is there's more of a stigma against placing your child with another Tanzanian family than there is against placing them in an orphanage. Because there's an understanding that with Western funding, orphanages are often able to provide better opportunities, better education, and better long-term futures for the children in care. And that's why you've seen the number of kids continuing to rise, even as the number of double or single orphans has gone down. I will add that on top of that, about 80% of the children in care have living relatives that with support could take them home. And by about age five, we're able to get half of the children who enter care home. And by 14 or 15, we're able to get about three quarters of them home. But it does leave a significant core 20 to 25 percent who are either coming from severely abusive or neglectful backgrounds, who really have no one, who are abandoned in the hospital and no one can be tracked down or oftentimes sibling groups who lost their parent at an older age. Uh, Also mental health conditions, there's very little mental health care. So for instance, one of the children in our care had to come into care because her mother had had severe postpartum psychosis with three Mm -hmm. previous pregnancies. She had unfortunately killed all three of her, her previous children. And her aunt, who was the only other, you know, the mother's sister, who was the only other family member, was afraid to take in the child who ended up in care because she didn't want herself and her own child to become a target. So there's cases where While, you know, our organization in particular is really heavily focused on keeping children in families and getting them back to families when it is possible, there are also a number of kids for whom that will always be necessary.
4: I mean, if I'm doing my math right, we're looking at something between 5,000 and 10,000 children, right, who are not going to be able to be returned to to families even with support. Exactly. I'm also curious because I'm very interested in social norms with, within yeah. communities. So, when we're thinking about the decision of a parent to place their child who they, they love dearly but can't actually care for, right, yeah. to decide to, to, to place him in an orphanage or with a family member. You mentioned that there's a sense the orphanage can care for them better, right? But I'm also curious if there's not also a sense where it's the orphanage's job, and so therefore I'm not beholden to you as an orphanage if I place but as if I place you with, with a family member, then I'm indebted to you in some
5: ways that I'm not with the orphanage. Does that play any role in, in Tanzania? Absolutely. I think what we see is that there is a degree of shame about allowing another unrelated family. Of course, again, there's a lot of support within the the existing network, but taking a child away. The one time you do see adoption, which is interesting, is uh, infertile couples. often adopt small babies move to a new region pretend it was theirs all along and you know what that may not be how i would do it but it works for them and it does get some kids into families which is great but i do think there's definitely an expectations problem and it's one that we've been pretty successful in addressing in the last 10 years but it will take a shift in each community like that we begin work on reunification and creating a reunification plan the day that a child comes into care. Um, So really saying this is still your child. We're going to be a second family and a second support system for them. But you are still their parent and you are still respected and appreciated in that role. A lot of the older style orphanages that were real institutions, parents were afraid to visit because they often owed money. The orphanages were expecting them to pay even something like $5 a month for the child's care. And these families, if they had that, they would, you know... They would would have had the kids at home, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So it's, it's a challenge, I think, really making people welcome, treating them with respect when they're there, assuming that families don't give up their children, unless they have a good reason to. Yeah. And so you go into this with the with the respect that whatever reasons you had, they make sense to you. Let's work through them and see if we can address any of your challenges so that we can change your incentives. But at the end of the day, if they don't want to take the kid home, them being home is not the best solution. Right. You know, we want everyone to be Welcome. enthusiastic yeah. Yeah. about the yeah. solutions. Yeah.
4: I can imagine it's quite traumatic as a mother to have to give your child to an orphanage because you can't take care of them. Yeah. This may be beyond, I recognize there's you know, limited resources, but is there any sort of mental health support for, for the parents who've had to yeah. give
5: up their children? So our, the way that we work, and again, it varies broadly, Overall, you're absolutely right. It's much easier to give up your child than it is to get support to keep them. And that's what we aim to change. But within our organization, if there's a will, if there's somebody who's willing to care for the child, we won't remove them from the home. We'll provide economic support and over time work towards independence. Usually, what's interesting is if there's a mother alive, The children, even through the Social Welfare Department, usually won't be permitted to enter an orphanage even if they want to, which in some cases leaves mothers in really tough positions. We have one child in care, actually, no, not in care, who we were able to support through outreach, but she was very close to abandoning her child. She confessed to one of our staff, or a family member of one of our staff, that she had tried to go to social welfare and get support. They said, "You're alive. You we don't can't need help support. you." Exactly. Um, she'd been sleeping on the streets, and so she was going to abandon him under a bush where she thought he'd be found. And we said, "Please don't do that." You know. And we were able to provide daycare for her baby so that she could work, and then a small amount of economic support to help her start a business. And so she's been actually graduated from our program for a number of years. Her, her son is, I think he's in our preschool now, uh, actually. So he's, he's five or six. Sometimes the challenges are actually very small. They just feel insurmountable. Right. And in other cases, what's fascinating is it's actually a lot cheaper to support a child at home. The communication just isn't happening. So we have a lot of cases where it turned out that Children are being left in care simply because they would go to a better quality of school. Meanwhile, it's so much cheaper for us to pay tuition for a good school for a child to do that near their home than it is for them to, to be living. Yeah. Exactly. But because that was never discussed as an option and because they felt it was a hundred percent or nothing then you're left with families making these very difficult decisions. So our goal is to meet the families where they are so that they can do what they're emotionally able to do. That's fantastic. It's really
4: excellent, excellent work. Before we move on to the the coalition and that work, can you give us a sense of what an orphanage looks like? I mean I yeah. think many of us have, I don't know, Oliver in our minds or different things, you know, different ideas of what those, what those look like, but but can you help us get a, a sense of the landscape? And I'm sure there's variation in them. But
5: Yeah, there's a really broad range. I would say that the most, probably the most common and the type that's caring for the most kids in terms of raw numbers are these really little local homes with one mama or oftentimes a a pastor, you know, a a church couple who will just sort of informally start taking kids into their home. And then over time, they they formalize it. These places are usually rough. They'll often have, you know, Oliver-esque, you know, rows of bunk beds. We call it uji, is the the porridge with peanut butter, and but a lot of uji, you know, really keeping, it, it can be really rough for them to just survive. Everyone in the community supports them, they'll bring food, you know, so they have the basics to survive, but money for school, they often don't have any outside donors, they're just trying to, to scrape by. Then there are the internationally funded NGOs run organizations. And on average, we've done, um, we've done some studies and surveys looking at the different types of infrastructure and the different needs from different organizations. And what we found is that the locally run organizations in particular are struggling so hard with the basic infrastructure, with payment systems, with any type of administration, with any type of policies and procedures. The international organizations or the internationally backed and partnered organizations on average tend to do a lot better. But their quality of care can vary widely. You always have the psychological side and the physical side. And the little local places actually often do a really great job on the psychological side because the children are in a family environment, they're loved, they're in their community, they have really a pretty normal upbringing, although a poor one. On the other hand, they have fewer opportunities. The NGOs traditionally had a better-funded but still an institutional style. Now more of them, including our organization, are transitioning to family-style children's villages or family-style homes to really, basically, studies show that that gives the best outcomes. But Prior to that, they were a lot of institutional-style buildings, not as good connection with the caretakers, usually, and better provision of food, education, the the material, needs. Yes, yeah, material needs. Exactly. Resources. So what we're moving towards now, and I think that the hybrid that's coming about and that I hope continues, is where we're able to bring together the grassroots individuals in the community who've been doing this work, the mamas usually, um, there are exceptions, but usually the mamas, with the people who have that external institutional type of knowledge and really get the one to be empowering the other, as opposed to our region has actually stopped issuing new orphanage licenses, which I think is a really good thing because There isn't really a need for more white people to come in and start something new. There's a lot of need for white people or anybody with resources and skills to come in and support the existing organizations in improving their work.
4: Great. And that's where your work comes in. So would you like to tell us a little bit about your
5: work and, and how you're moving forward with that? Yeah. So the Families and Futures Coalition of Tanzania was... An idea that we've been sort of throwing around since the beginning, seeing these incredible individuals who are doing this work, and, and how much of a difference in our case. I sat down with Mama Pendo in, in 2011 or 2012, I'd known her for a year or two, and... and she's orphan. Orf- she runs an orphanage? Excuse me, okay, yes. Yeah. She's the woman who, who runs the orphanage that I first became involved in, and that my children were adopted from. She is the most loving and amazing human being I have ever encountered. She has been caring for hundreds of kids since the Uh mid-80s and uh, has personally adopted a few, has had to bury more than I would like to consider, and has a whole network of these amazing young adults now in the community that are coming back to her. So she's an incredible woman. I sat down with her. And I said, if you had a million dollars, pretend for a second you had all the money in the world. What does this community need? You know, what what do you want to build? And she said, we need better support for the families that want to take their kids home because a lot of times it's just economic. And we need real family-style homes for the kids that Our stay. Yeah. Prior to that, you know, originally kids were going home at age two, and a lot of them were dying. Between a third and a half were severely abused, neglected, or dying within a year or two of being returned home. She actually stopped doing follow-up visits because it was too depressing. She adopted a few but couldn't save everyone. Then there was a transition uh, where some donors came in and were able to support getting the kids into boarding school, which was a big improvement in that they were physically safe, they were getting educated, Mm -hmm. but you were seeing kids coming out having gone from an orphanage to a boarding school never having lived in their own communities, and not really knowing how to do that. One of the other things is that when we first got there, they were so underfunded. I was a volunteer originally. They were so underfunded that they needed volunteers because otherwise the diapers wouldn't get changed, you know. But over time, we've been able to transition away from that so that you really cement the caregiver's relationships with the children. And I think that's been a core part of our direct service work and and the way that we've helped turn what was an orphanage into a family-style children's village that really does provide loving care for the interim, usually as hopefully as short as possible, that children need to be in care. So based on this 10 years of experience uh, administering programs, Our outreach programs have been able to keep 90% of kids in their homes with their families, of the kids that come into care. Like I said, we get 50% home by age five, 80% home by secondary school now. We've got a model that works in our area. And there are a lot of people who have models that work in their area. And so there's a large international movement towards family care, alternative care, encouraging orphanages to transition. And that's a wonderful thing. But one of the approaches that they've taken is encouraging funders to cut off funding to existing orphanages and traditional orphanages. And the problem with that is that it takes money to transition and to implement family programs. So these organizations are being left behind without the ability to, to make these transitions. So through the coalition, our goal is to really provide the practical resources at a level that's accessible for local staff, an M&E monitoring and evaluation system, case management that your average Tanzanian with an eighth grade education can go and and use and put to use in the field. Additionally, with the training, really focusing on peer-to-peer, so instead of having There's been very limited success with people coming from the outside, and they have very good intentions, and they talk all about how things worked in Ukraine, deinstitutionalization, and it's wonderful, but it's not always effective in our context. So there's a few pieces. So there's the the training and the facilitation, and then the other major component is removing some of the capacity roadblocks that are really holding back grassroots organizations that have the service delivery part down, but rather than each of them reinventing the wheel when it comes right. to their outcome monitoring, their administration, their fundraising structures, their sponsorship programs, it makes so much more sense to have a larger organization that's able to help facilitate and make sure that funders are getting what they want and organizations are getting what they need to provide services. That's fabulous. That's really, really important to work. I'm
4: curious to know what you see as the biggest challenge in making this happen, right? It's a fabulous idea.
5: It's interesting because the narrative that's out there is it's the orphanages that don't want to change. And I'm sure that there are cases where that's true, especially in countries where it's become more commercialized, where there's been trafficking with adoption, where there's been a lot of unethical people entering the space. In Tanzania, that really hasn't been a major issue. Most of the people who are taking care of kids just want the best thing for their kids. kids. And so they're eager to transition to better models. Tanzanians adore family. There's nothing more important than family. So I think the the perception of the barriers is very different from the reality of the barriers. In our experience, the real barrier is, to be perfectly frank, money, but money in that it enables standardization of programs, uh, training, and really providing access to services that aren't available otherwise. Our goal is to create hubs in each district that are able to be serve as a center for collaboration and also provide access to services that everybody needs, but not everybody needs all the time. So things like nonprofit-specific law, legal advice, HR consultants, administrative support, psychiatrists yeah. that are able to you know, deal with more severe issues while providing support and training for the the direct service counselors. So there's a lot of pieces that with a fairly small investment could go a really long way but there's a threshold there. There's the small organizations and there's the the large funders and there are some very big gaps in between them right now.
4: So I want to end both by thanking you, which I'll do again in a moment, but also with, we have these inspiring moments as well, right? I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of bleak days and what you're dealing with are really hard issues. We can talk about them in terms of numbers, but I mean, every time we say 5,000, know, we really need to imagine 5,000 kids who are without parents and without a place to go. But again, we, we also have moments of bright. And, and I'd like to just hear a little
5: bit about something that you have found inspiring. What keeps you going in this? Oh, there are so many, it's hard to choose. There are two things that I want to I mention. One that's more of a policy win, and one that's more of, a, of an individual win. On the policy side, we were dealing with a lot of issues with getting children home because of stepmothers. Over a long period, we were saying, okay, the the father wants the kid home, but the stepmother is not willing. They're concerned about their own children's well-being, which is reasonable. So what we found is, okay, even if we pay for school fees, we send the kid home, they're a burden on the family, uh, and it can be very difficult. So we can't do it. We can't send any kids with stepmothers home. Someone on our team, someone actually with very little formal education, came up with a brilliant idea and said, what if we send one younger sibling to the same school as them. And all of a sudden, that younger sibling bonds with the older sibling, and the child becomes an asset to the family instead of a burden. And again, fabulous. still so yeah. much cheaper than, so these wins don't, it doesn't have to be more expensive even, sometimes it's just about listening to the voices that really understand the details of, of the issue and can come up with these creative solutions. That's neat. The other story I have is about a little boy named Prey, and we thought he had been involved in a pretty severe fire a year or two before I got to the orphanage. My son was actually in the same one. He was lucky not to be burned. It was a... It
4: was a fire at the orphanage. It was a
5: fire at the orphanage, and one of the mamas, one of the caretakers, actually ran in and grabbed every child out. It was an electrical fire. She got quite badly burned in the process, and Prey also got quite badly burned. and. Mama Pendo, the woman who ran the orphanage, tried to track down the family members. She called and called the number that she'd been given when he was dropped off, but they couldn't get in touch with anyone. Nobody ever came to visit him in the hospital. They had given up and said, this kid's gonna be with us for life. Turns out, when we started doing our family preservation work, a little while later, more and more of the kids were able to go home for break because we'd been doing family tracing and really working with them to figure out what their challenges were. But Pray, we were leaving towards the end because we didn't think he had anyone. And he started telling us he'd see his friends go home and he'd be sad about it and he started telling us I have a dad too and my dad lives on a farm and he has bananas and he has corn and he has a little area that's just for me when I grow up we're all like oh you know this poor kid he's he's just you know he's imagining this he's, imagining yeah. this. he's making yeah. things up and then we we went to his village it was very very remote area that was the only information we had was the village and the grandmother's name turns out that the grandmother had had a huge falling out with the rest of the family Family, had gotten rid of her phone and was no longer in contact with any of them, so they didn't have any idea where he was. His parents, his father and his stepmother, they lived on a farm, they had chickens and corn and bananas, and they had a little part of their land that they were saving
1: just for prey
5: when he it grows up to inherit. Even when you think the situation is bleak, and even when it seems like people don't care, 99 times out of 100, there is somebody who loves that child and it's just a matter of tracking them down and figuring out what they need to be able to be in the role that they usually are desperate to be in already. So that's been very, very fulfilling and and wonderful to get to facilitate. That's wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you for for joining us, but also thank you for the work you do.
4: It's just amazing.
5: Thank you so much for having me and and for helping to spread the word. Uh, If anybody is interested, our website is familiesandfutures.org for the coalition work and thesmallthings.org for the direct service work. Great. And we'll also put a link on the website to that. So thank you. Thanks again.
0: That was all for this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please like and share if you did. And also feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials on what you would like to hear more about in the upcoming episodes. We'd love to hear from you.